Welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, the tragic case of the 43 missing Mexican college students. Why so little progress? And what does this say about Mexico's criminal justice system? We'll ask Michael V. Hill, a former undercover DEA agent in Mexico who rose to head the DEA's international operations. Mike, welcome back. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mike, in our recent March show, available at stephenspitz.com, you traced the development of the Mexican drug cartels. And today, I'd like to look at one reason for that, a weak criminal justice system, and then ask, what are those consequences? And finally, Mexico has just replaced China as the U.S.'s number one trading partner. What does this mean for Mexico? With that, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, I was born and raised in Española, New Mexico. I attended the uh, Española school system, graduated from high school there. And then I went on to New Mexico State University, located in Las Cruces, New Mexico, where I majored in police science, criminal justice. And upon graduating, I applied for many law enforcement agencies to include FBI, even the New Mexico State Police. But the one that really interested me, Stephen, was the Drug Enforcement Administration, because at that time it was the only one that had a charter to work both domestic and foreign. CIA only worked abroad, FBI worked domestically. And then I was uh, pretty much mesmerized with the issue of uh, the undercover work, you know, playing the ultimate game of cat and mouse. And, uh, you know, that's why I went into the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, and I have absolutely no regrets. So you, you started, I think, here, actually right here in Albuquerque as an undercover agent, but then quickly you went to Mexico, and how much time did you spend in Mexico undercover? I, I spent uh, initially six and a half years in Hermosillo, Sonora, Mexico, and then I went to other places and then came back to Mexico City, where I did another six and a half years during the heyday of the uh, cartels, you know, the, uh, the violence, you know, everything that was taking place at that point in time. So it was a very interesting period for me. It was very exciting, but it was also highly dangerous. You didn't spend all your time behind a desk, right? No, I spent it, uh, as little time as I could, Stephen, <laughs> sitting at a desk because I, you know, I'm just not a person that can sit there all day. I did a lot of undercover work. Uh, many times I would go into some of the cartel strongholds without any backup. You know, I would go there by myself, usually accompanied by an informant that would introduce me to these people as a mafioso that was interested in doing business with them. And then I would usually cut the informant out and start dealing with these people on my own. I would not bring in the uh, Mexican Federal Judicial Police until the delivery was set to occur, but not before that because they were very good at many things that they did, but they weren't good at certain things like surveillance because they didn't have the patience to do it. And they thought that a drug deal would 
should happen in like five minutes. It never worked that way. So there, there's a question I wanted to ask you last time in our March show that I didn't. And it's a pretty simple question. For those of us that cannot comprehend why you were doing this, why were you doing this? What, what was it about this that got you to do it and kept you doing it? Well, to me, it was almost like working as a James Bond because, you know, I, I would be flying to Rio de Janeiro. I would be going into Santiago, Chile. I would be going into Santa Cruz de la Sierra, Bolivia, and working undercover against some of the most uh, ultra-violent uh, cartels in the, uh, in the world. So, again, it was uh, very, very interesting to me and uh, just, uh, just loved doing the work. And it got to the point where I almost got addicted to the adrenaline rush. And if I was not in danger and if I was not working undercover, uh, you know, and a week would pass. Uh, you you know, get bored. I, I would get bored <laughs> and, and then I would get depressed. You know, I, I, I wanted to be in the action. So, so before we leave this area, Mike, since our, we last talked, there's been a lot of attention by politicos about how to stop fentanyl from coming into the U.S. And I'm going to sort of list off some of the things they're suggesting and get, just get your overall reaction. Uh, one is this has happened. Uh, indict the Chapitos, uh, El Chapo's sons. Pressure China to clamp down on the, sending the precursors here. Uh, enhance inspections by Texas police, declare the cartels a foreign terrorist organization, uh, use drones and missiles launched in the United States to go after the cartels, use special forces, U.S. special forces, to go after kingpins in Mexico. And then, of course, is the usual build the wall, finish the wall. So the question is, would any or all of these things make a significant dent in the supply of fentanyl in the United States? No, uh, quite frankly, you know, I, I've heard all those arguments by a lot of the politicians, and I can certainly say that it's all garbage. You know, number one, you know, we are not going to attack Mexico for the reason that you just simply stated, where Mexico is our largest trading partner. And if we are to diminish the commercial impact of the uh, Chinese government, it's going to have to be with Mexico. And then we would create a um, tremendous problem, you know, if we went into Mexico using uh, the military forces and what have you, because that would send a very strong message to other countries in Latin America that if they didn't do what the United States wanted them to do, you know, the United States could possibly invade. Uh, additionally, a standing army is not trained to do this type of work. It's not like they're going to go in there and be fighting another army. You know, th this would be somewhat similar to fighting the Viet Cong in, in uh, Vietnam, where they would come out and fire a few shots, and then they would uh, blend into the uh, local population. So... Uh, and then designating them as, um, car, as uh, terrorist organizations, the only thing that does is, one, it uh, basically allows the U.S. government to seize uh, money 
that are in financial institutions here in the United States. Two, uh, it would sanction American citizens that deal with, you know, cartel-related uh, businesses. And then it tries to prevent these people that are designated as terrorists from coming into the United States. That's all it does. But this is under Section 219 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. But people think that designating them as terrorists would allow drone strikes and bombardments. Uh, does absolutely none of that. So the reason people are suggesting these kinds of things, I believe, is because they realize the, the Mexican criminal justice system is simply not functioning adequately to stop this stuff, the illegal stuff going on internally. And so what I'd like to do now is turn to that question with you. But before I do that, let me mention that this is New Mexico People, Places and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm very pleased to be sitting across actually from a new friend of mine, Mike Vigil, an undercover DEA agent in Mexico for, I think he said, more than 12 years. And Mike, I'd just like to briefly touch on this really tragic case of the 43 missing Mexican college students. And this, uh, this happened in 2014. There's been almost no progress in the case. It was a cause celeb. It basically cratered uh, Pena Nieto's regime because he was ill thought of after that. Lopez Obrador, who the pr current president who ran on it, uh, ran on making this right, in essence, hasn't made any progress. So it's not like the Mexican people aren't focused on this thing, but it still had it had no effect. So, so could you just tell us a little bit about this case? Sure. This case, as you mentioned, uh, happened on September 26th of uh, 2014. And it involved 43 male students from the teacher's rural college in Ayotzinapa, Guerrero. And every year what they would do, Stephen, is they would go and commandeer buses to go and protest for the 1968 massacre of students that were protesting the Olympics, not because of the Olympics itself, but they were very displeased with the ruling party, the uh, PRI or the uh, Institutional Revolutionary Party. So they started, they took buses from a local uh, bus station and they were going through uh, Iguala, Guerrero, and they were stopped by local police from Cucula and then also Iguala. They, had, they put up roadblocks and there were no questions asked. The police started shooting at them, and they took them off the buses and put them into the squad cars of these police departments, stacked up in the back seat like sardines. And then, allegedly, they turned them over to this criminal group, a drug trafficking group called Guerrieros Unidos, which means the United Warriors. And from there, they disappeared. Uh, there was uh, apparently collusion, you know, from the local police uh, forces, from the federal police, and then also from the military because there is a infantry battalion based in near Iguala. So these were individuals that were using public funded equipment, squad cars, 
you know, uh, 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 weapons and what have you, and they killed these individuals. We've never found the bodies, right? There has been uh, one or two bodies that have been found. Yeah. And then they were matched up with family uh, DNA. Okay. But the vast majority of them were never found. And I find that absolutely amazing because this involves 43 students. And there's witnesses too. There, there's witnesses, and there's people that, that stated that six of these students were taken to this military base. And then the colonel, Colonel Rodriguez, who was the head of that military base, gave the order to kill them. So that case has never been solved. But it's not shocking to me because the judicial system there is very lacking. For example, here in the United States, we have about a 95 to 98 percent success rate in our criminal prosecutions, at, the, at least in, at the federal level. And in Mexico, they only have about a 5 percent success rate. So what does that tell you? And there's been other massacres, like the Mormon massacre on the border of uh, Sonora and Chihuahua that, you know, has not been solved. And they'll, they'll arrest certain people, but, you know, normally they're not the people that were involved necessarily. So it, it's, a, it's a major problem in Mexico. The other thing that I would mention is that uh, the citizens of Mexico don't have any confidence Stephen, in the judiciary, and they only report maybe 10% of the crimes that they witness or that are committed against them. So th there have been all these investigations, as one can imagine. Just imagine one college student is abducted in the United States. It's a causal lab. This is 43 of them. And there have been all these investigations, including an international panel of experts appointed by a human rights commission. And they just within the last month had thrown up their hands and said, they're going to leave Mexico. And basically they said what you already said. They said, and I'm going to quote this now. We don't know who did what we do know that what we're being told is not true. So this kind of sounds like a mystery to me. I mean, you have the military, the federal police, and the state police and public officials all lying, and we don't know why. I mean, these are innocent students, right? They're not sicarios. They're innocent students. They haven't paid for protection. I mean, it's completely weird. Well, you're absolutely right, and, you know, uh, it, it was really a lost cause because, you know, they brought in... Uh, experts from around the world, you know, yeah. to do investigations. But uh, it, it pretty much was going to be stifled because of the involvement of all these government agencies. So, Mike, one of the really shocking things I read is that, you know, there's been this incredible search for bodies because these students have been missing since 2014. And what happened was in Guerrero, they discovered all these mass graves that they didn't know about before. And in doing that, they found 500 unidentified bodies, 500. So these are all unsolved crimes. I mean, how is that happening? Well, let me, let me uh, say this, is that Mexico is 
pockmarked. The entire country is pockmarked with unmarked graves. And you're right, in the search for the uh, 43 uh, students, they uncovered grave sites where bodies were, you know, just basically uh, buried in mass graves. But that occurs throughout Mexico. So I want to return to two things you said just earlier, which is one, a 5% conviction rate, and two, only 10% of the crimes are reported. And my assumption is that if that's the case, you're basically inviting increased criminal activity. Because if, if there's no real law enforcement, and from what I've read, that's exactly what's happened. That is, the cartels and other groups have gone into lawful, what were lawful businesses, and really tried to take control of them. Absolutely right, Stephen. You, you, you hit the nail on the head, is that the security forces of, of uh, uh, Mexico are not well trained. And then number two, they're not well equipped. So many times they're actual fodder for the cartels that are running around there with armored vehicles, with 50 caliber machine guns and what have you. And the, the uh, corruption levels are very high because the, these police forces are not paid very much money. So the cartel steps in and gives them, you know, probably uh, 10 times uh, more money than they're being paid by the, uh, the government. The, the other thing that you should, uh, that you need to consider is Lopez Obrador's policies of hugs and not gunshots. You know, not confronting the cartels. And as a result of not confronting the cartels, now they, they operate with even greater impunity and also, you know, with uh, complete disregard to the rule of law. So, so what, what I've read is, like, they're very scientific in their, in their extortion. Like, they know what the crop yield is of a farmer. Uh, they know uh, how much money he's going to get. They actually tax it, basically. The same with fishing. The same with lumber. They're stealing oil. I mean, basically, almost any illegal activity that you can think of they're interested in. Well, it, it's true because, you know, they, they've uh, penetrated the uh, fishing industry, not only from the fishermen, but all the way down the uh, distribution chain. Now, you know, they're involved in the tortilla business. In the you tortilla know, they, business. They have gone and they started to basically intimidate the uh, people that have all these uh, tortilla stores. And there's a lot of them because that's one of the uh, staple uh, food items, you know, in, in Mexico. The other thing that they engage in is the migrant smuggling. Yeah. I've heard it's 12500 to get a, get through Mexico. Yes. Dollars. And anywhere from 8000 to over $12,000. Yeah. And that is now calculated at being about a $19 billion a year industry for the cartels. Wow. And they also take a lot of the, uh, you know, these migrant women coming, especially from the uh, uh, Northern Triangle, uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and put them into the uh, sex trade. So they are involved in basically everything. Then the corruption, where they corrupt a lot of the uh, politicians there, you know, it really starts to disintegrate, if you will, democracy. And that is a big problem right now in Mexico. So I, I want to ask you just who the 
the they are. But let me mention first that this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm very pleased to be talking today with a former undercover DEA agent in Mexico, Mike Vigil. And Mike, you know, when, when we think about Mexico and the cartels, we, we think about maybe five to seven cartels. What, what I've been reading is that there's actually maybe 150 to 200 criminal organizations. And one of the things that struck me about this is basically if you went in to try to take out the cartel leaders, and let's take, say you also get the hitmen, the Sicarios, you've got all these minor leagues and all these minor leaguers. I mean, you have almost have an unending supply of people willing to engage in illegal activity. And, it's, and it just strikes me as that's one of the things that simply isn't considered by those people, like why the Calderon kingpin strategy failed, because you knock out the kingpins, but there's plenty of people to take their place. Well, you're absolutely right. You know, Felipe Calderon came into power in 2006, and he started this kingpin strategy of going and killing and capturing the kingpins. And he uh, wanted to do the right thing. There's no question. But what he didn't foresee is that, you know, a situation was going to develop like the proverbial Greek hydra where you cut off a head and two take its place. And that's exactly what happened. And now you actually need a scorecard to know all of the cartels that are operating in Mexico. Some of them are very small. Some are medium size. The two most powerful ones are the Sinaloa cartel, now headed by Ismael Zambada. And then you have the Jalisco New Generation cartel based out of the state of Jalisco, headed by Nemesio Oseguera Cervantes, who is super violent. This, this man, you know, he, he makes threats and he carries them out. So those are the ones that are causing the most damage here in New Mexico in the United States because they are moving away from plant-based drugs like marijuana, you know, the amapola or opium poppy that produces heroin into synthetic drugs, methamphetamine, and then primarily fentanyl because they can get the precursor chemicals from China, you know, with, you know at a very low cost. And it's pennies pennies to produce, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, the fentanyl there. And they produce it in metal tubs and they mix the chemicals in shovels or sticks. And it's very easy to smuggle into the United States. Uh, most of it comes in through the uh, legitimate ports of entry. You'll hear politicians that say, oh, you know, it's uh, migrants and backpacks. Not so, you know, it's totally illogical because backpackers are not going to bring in the quantities necessary to feed U.S. consumption. So I want to switch gears completely with you, because one would think, given what we've been talking about, that there's a real drag on the Mexican economy. I mean, who wants to be a big businessman in Mexico if this is going on? Well, the answer is a lot of people. Mexico's economy is actually going like gangbusters, growing at 3.7%. It's just replaced China as our leading trading partner, as you mentioned. And it seems to me like the reason for this is the, the same reason for fentanyl success in the United States. It's the largest consumer market in the world. And now you can locate from China to Mexico 
you come in under the, the NAFTA or its, or its successor, duty-free, uh, scores of Chinese companies are actually locating in Mexico. That, that's uh, absolutely right. You know, they, they get uh, cheap labor there. And they're willing to take the risk that, you know, cartels are going to come in and extort them, kidnap them for ransom. Like a cost of doing business. So they look at it as the cost of doing business. But what, one of the things that they do is they enhance security, you know, especially for, you know, the heads of these companies. And one of the industries that the United States really engages in with Mexico is the automotive industry. Yeah. They send parts and what have you, and then you have the uh, conveyor belt system. But uh, China's uh, commercial issues with the United States uh, took a hit during the uh, pandemic where they increased uh, tariffs on Chinese products. Right. It's all. It's the reshoring, de-risking. Uh, it's uh, the, the, the Trump tariffs, with, which Biden kept on. But I, I want to, uh, like, come back to something you said. You mentioned the automotive industry, and that's really the maquilas, right, on, on, on the border. yeah. Yeah, uh, on the border with New Mexico. And, and that's what I'd like to ask you about, because people might not know that New Mexico actually has a, a land port called Santa Teresa. And that port is, a, I understand, a relatively small port physically. There's also a smaller industrial part next to it, but it's still the fourth largest port in terms of truck entry. And I, I guess what I'd like to ask you is we, we hear a lot about diversifying the New Mexico economy. And we, what we hear about are uh, like marijuana, uh, <laughs> movies, uh, and clean energy. And what we don't hear about, uh, at least as I haven't heard about, is really like pressuring the federal government to expand that port, expanding that industrial park so more businesses can locate in southeast Mexico. And I guess my question is, is the reason for that, that it just isn't a sexy idea, that it's old school, or is it really not that much of an opportunity? Are these other opportunities really significantly better? I mean, how would you assess that? I, I, th I think that there's a, a lot of opportunities in Mexico. You know, there's uh, actually three ports of entry along the 180-mile stretch of border that we have with Mexico. So I think that there's uh, opportunities here. Uh, you know, given the fact that we have that 180-mile uh, uh, border area. But again, you know, it's going to require, uh, you know, the governor you know, some of the politicians, businessmen to, you know, start looking at some of these opportunities and the opportunities are there, especially now that Mexico has uh, taken over uh, China's uh, primary spot in terms of commerce with, with the U.S. We're going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank today's guest, former undercover DEA agent in Mexico, Michael B. Hill. Thanks also to my producers, Gusta Foya and Roman Garcia. The executive producer of this show is Lynn Shebecki, and my name is Steven Spitz. You've been listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas on KUNM. Podcasts of this show are available wherever you get podcasts. Search Steven Spitz. 
archives of past shows are at stevenspitz.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.